Hello, hello, and welcome to this King Heroes Journey podcast. My name is Beth Martins, and I'm super happy to be here with Sergey. Now I'm going to try to say your last name, Klotov. Did I get it right? Yes. Sergey? Yes. Awesome. Good. Good. Well, I've known Sergey for, uh, I guess, a few years now. You and I have connected through the, the truth community. And That's right. I've come to know, know Sergey as a, a stand-up young man with a, a strong interest in history and the financials of the world, the way that they have come forward to us. You know, it, it, in my experience, I just was born into this system. I, up until recently, never gave it a thought. Where did it come from? What was the history? How did this all play out? Do you want to talk a little bit, you know, just say a tiny bit about yourself and, and what inspired you to have this interest in the first place before we start digging in? Sure. So thank you for having me. Oh, my um, pleasure. And well, my intellectual journey, it started pretty recently, but it's driven by these two, I guess, polar voices of when I'm going through life and I'm seeing how things are arranged something comes up and i hear this voice saying uh, something isn't right mm -hmm. and so i said okay then i'll go and try to explore what's going on and then i find someone and then i realize ah they know something that i don't and then i go and explore and try to figure it out and mm -hmm. so uh, to answer your question, what drives me is um, to gain freedom and authority over your position, over our situation. Mm -hmm. We must first, in my opinion, we must first take on responsibility of looking around and figuring out underlying biases of existing operating systems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Brilliant. That's awesome. And how this came about, this conversation in the first place, just to let you guys know, it was a, a serendipitous, I noticed that uh, Sergey had posted in, in Facebook something about Bitcoin, and I, I asked about it because I have an interest in that direction. And the next thing you know, we got on a conversation, we must have talked for two straight hours into the night. I took four solid pages of notes and I'm like, okay, I have to interview you. You, you got a lot of knowledge here and everybody should hear it. You're too kind. <laughs> so let's jump into the whole concept of time. This is something that, again, everybody would take for granted, right? We look at our clock and, uh, and we just follow it. And that's how, that's how we get through our day and make our appointments and set out our schedules. And there's something that people generally don't know about time. Now, people in my world might know. Hello to the, those who are, are showing up in the chat. By the way, Mike is here and Celtic Girl. I hear Amanda was deleted off YouTube. That was just a matter of time. But um, let's dive in now and talk about time. This, this was fascinating. I've been quoting you ever since we talked about this, Sergey. Wow. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so with time, ancient Greeks realized and they had two different words for time they had chronos and kairos and chronos is quantitative time it's time on the clock mm -hmm. um 
it's a, almost a machine time, you know, institutions and abstractions live in Kronos, mm -hmm. but Kairos is human time. In fact, the better word would be human timing. Um, the source where I learned this a guy called Douglas Roshkoff, he puts it as, you know, you crash your car at say 2.15. That's, but when do you tell, I don't know, your partner or your father about it, you tell them at 2.30 or 2.35, no. You tell them after uh, he had a drink, but before he opened up the bills. <laughs> That's such a great example. I love that. I love that. And then just to congratulate myself, I have always had this phrase in my head that time is nothing and timing is everything. That's right. That's exactly it. Um, and, you know, it's humans ultimately live in Kairos because um, the way our relationship structures and the way our trust is structured. And then that's also, I would say that's also how uh, life itself lives because idea of Kronos and dividing time into these chunks and pieces is really a, a human invention and an abstraction ultimately mm -hmm. um, but with Kronos and Kairos there's a larger point because those two versions of time create their own narrative narrative mm -hmm. um, Kronos and the idea of time and recording time they really came about with invention of text so you know before people lived you know, you just stars circle and the seasons change and you're just living in the now. But now when, but when people started recording um, text, now there was a, a, a past, a present and a future. Mm -hmm. You know, first texts that originated, there were contracts, there were obligations into the future. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and then this standard narrow narrative came about um, this narrative arc from point A to point B. You're, now you're going somewhere. Um, there's a beginning, middle, and an end. And, you know, it's like gods used to be more chaotic, these chaotic creatures, and now um, God is this established um, being with a, and now there's a contract with him. Right. And so with Kronos, um, because there was a, a f um, this idea of where we're going now, there was a future empires and movement develops. So as Caesar, great emperor, put it, I came, I saw, I conquered. There's ah. a point, you know, um, the point of the game now becomes to win. The emphasis is on the goal in the future. Mm -hmm. But with Kairos, the narrative is much older and it's not as not like a straight line with a beginning and that but it's a circle mm -hmm. you know human and natural time is cyclical it doesn't really have a beginning and an end um you know we say that you know earth like like earth developed this time ago and it's gonna stop then but these are such large time horizons we can't really properly put them in uh, perspective and so key thing is that 
because there is no beginning and an end, the emphasis is on the now and here. Right. And because you're not playing the game to win, because there is no uh, end to it, the point of the game isn't to win, but uh, but to keep the game going and to make it as fun as possible for everybody participating in it. Amazing, amazing. I've actually had a good breakthrough in the coaching that I do with people because I see how, especially when they've set out to build a business, then they have this chronos kind of time frame in mind. And they think that they're going to do it and it will be done and they'll win, they'll be successful and, and that will be like over, the straight line is finished. But it's actually in reality, it's Kairos. And it's actually never done. Every step just leads to the next step and keeps bringing them back to the now where they can get new energy, new information and, you know, make a change or keep going, whatever it is. And uh, so that's been a big breakthrough for me in, in being able to express that to clients. I've always known it and talked about it, but in now, now with an immense clarity, I feel it. Exactly. Uh, we'll cover that a bit about business later, but sure. you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, there'll be a larger context to it. That's a very good point. Um, I'm just saying that, you know, the purpose of the business is to keep the business going, to keep people employed and keep it sustainable mm -hmm. rather than, uh, I guess the popular narrative today is to just, um, to build up the business, collect money and then do a, and then a sell it off to someone and then mm -hmm. like cash in and cash out. Yes. It's a short-term paradigm rather than a long-term sustainable business. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And then the, you're forever mystified. Every time a client needs to pivot because they got new information about themselves or their world, then they easily go into defeat about it. Like, yes. oh, that, that was wrong and now I have to begin again. It's like, no, you just have to keep going. That's right. right change pivot whatever needs to happen because you can have new information right and this is where i guess these conflicts of the two narrative narratives comes in so for the most of 20th for most of i guess human history not just 20th century we had an attitude of chronos and uh when you confuse the right the when you confuse the application of the narrative to the situation, you get problems. For example, is um, war and drugs, or war and poverty, or war in the environment. Right. You know, you don't win against the environment. There is you don't come in. You know, you you don't come in, see and conquer. Right. You know? Exactly. And, you know, so rather than you know you come in and you live in it and you see the existing cycles and relationships and incentives and redirect these cycles in correct ways and i guess that's that's a good place for a business to be rather than an extractive uh, model rather than one that creates wealth rather than extracts it beautiful i love it and then uh the the conflict of the two narratives showing up. So yeah, it's, it's, it's even so funny to say war on poverty. Like they're, they're, they're trying to like kill poverty, but that does that. I mean, we've had the war on poverty for a long time. We've had the war on drugs 
first of all, it's kind of a farce, right? They're, they flood the, the market with drugs. They're manufacturing artificial poverty. How do you see that? Oh, yeah, to- totally. Well, later in the talk, I'll there'll be a larger context to um, what it was like before mass interference into economic affairs, so manufactured poverty. Uh, but yes, you, are, you don't, poverty isn't something you win against. It's rather a uh, cyclical condition with which you gotta deal with and live with them rather than declare war on it. Right, right. Yeah, that's very wise. And what about the narrative around Kairos? Well, Kairos is narrative narrative where humans ultimately live and where humans feel most at home. Well, and while many people are not really used to it nowadays because we've been living under Kronos for so long, um, it's really the natural state. So how does one get to Kairos? Well, I'll give an example. Establishment of rapport and trust is a chemical process when you stare someone in the eyes uh, for longer than five seconds all kinds of um, hormones and evolutionary circuits fire and uh, and the establishment of trust happens you know 95 percent of communication is nonverbal, mm-hmm. or and so uh, human connection and ultimately kairos happens in between in the in between the lines i'll give you another conspiracy uh, another thing you know people talk about conspiracy um conspiracy means to conspire to breathe together right <laughs> how nice you know yeah how beautiful and so and so um, someone said you know if you believe there's a conspiracy what you should you should create your own um, and so establishment of these human connections, real connections is where I believe, I think freedom is because freedom means to live in a moral community of equals, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. that's where Kairos goes back. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'd love to talk about that distinction between sovereignty and freedom as well. I don't know if this is the right time for it, but uh, that to, just to, to back up slightly, the conspiracy to breathe together Right, and what are we doing right now? Masking people and, and distancing them so there's no way to share breath, to breathe right. together, right? right. And, and I believe it is such a, an inherent, and that, that, you know, like when you, when you look at a couple, like that's exactly what they're doing. They are, they are sharing breath, they're, they're, they're sharing their life energy, and there's nothing more powerful than that. Yes. You know, it's like how in mathematics you have one and two, and these are, you know, straightforward numbers, but between them, you can go infinitely inward 0.000. There's infinity between the numbers. And so between individual uh, humans, I guess, individual creatures, you get opens up the infinity of Kairos and infinite possibility. Right. And because that is, in my opinion, when I feel free, it's, it's got a timeless quality to it, right? You know, I'll, I'll give a, a two hour class and people are like, oh my God, is that over? There was, there was a certain timelessness about exactly, it. Exactly, 
that's that's exactly it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's a magical place timeless it's it's like it's not broken it's not fractured up it's not interrupted Uh, there can be flow and change but it's not it's not registered as a problem no it's not it's exactly the you know it's like um meaning comes in where and Kyra, when you're doing something and this Kairos of engagement completely takes over Kronos. Right, right. Is there any basis for Kronos in nature? Or is that a, just a, a, a construct? I mean, well, you know, it's like humans came up with it, so technically it's natural, but uh, I don't think it is because it's an it's an abstraction. You know, it's like Mondays don't exist outside right. of human perception. Right. Oh, exactly. And, and the time changes right we, that we just went through, very strategically placed at the equinox at a very transformational time, and then they blow our, you know, we, we were at least adjusted to their artificial version of time, and then you have to like th- you know take it all apart and readjust and spend the next six months or whatever it is to uh, get used to it until they pull it on you again. Right. Or for example, with um, each cycle of the moon, each week of the month, Mm -hmm. different hormones released in a body. So one week may be a serotonin week, another is a dopamine dopamine week. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the, again, the natural cycle, but Mm our standard weekly schedules don't account for it but these uh, hormonal cycles change ra- change human perception radically they really yeah. do and that can be proven like even you know my sister who's who's not into any of the you know esoteric stuff that i am but she knows that the hospital gets crazy with babies on the new moon and the full moon that's right Right, it's unmistakable. Every healthcare worker knows. Every every police officer knows that when the moon gets full, people go nutball. That's right. So that ain't a wives' tale. And and I just wanted to say one more thing about uh, Kairos and kind of congratulate myself because this is what I discovered inside myself. All of the work that I've ever done has not been about researching and reading books first. I I do that last. I find it inside myself and you know whether it's the movement of of emotions through the scale uh, from apathy grief fear lust anger pride courage acceptance peace it's not chronos it's not a straight line you're not just working your way up this ladder to get to peace and then you're done as soon as you're at peace you're actually at the next level of apathy and so the cycle keeps going. So no matter how high your energy gets, you always have a higher place to go. And to me, that keeps it all, uh, keeps us humble, keeps us all ultimately working on the same thing. Same with the archetypes. I notice how they spiral, just like you're talking about with Kairos. There's no, the hero's journey, for example, it doesn't have a beginning and an end and you're done. It goes right. on and on and on and potentially through lifetimes. In, yeah, I see. Interesting, because I, I, the beginning I thought it was also the beginning and an end narrative, but turns out uh, it's always cycling, and you're cycling through these stages. 
Exactly. And it, it means you don't have to go into defeat. Uh, I think, who was it in the chat here was saying, Mike was saying that uh, he always got, he, he said he constantly fell victim to the false paradigm of needing to restart uh, upon failures. And this is huge. If you can get this, every every good entrepreneur out there knows whether whether you're doing it for for you know monetary gain or or you're just following your purpose you know you need to do the work that that uh, and now it doesn't feel good to fail but it's the the life is actually mostly failures you you fail a lot more than you succeed and every time you fail it teaches you something about you know positioning yourself where where you needed to be what maybe missing step was there or what knowledge you didn't have uh, and and then and then you you use that so-called fail as a as a way to just take a next step um, you and I have been talking a lot about you you led me to Cal Washington who I already had known but look at him how many decades did he go through getting like smashed and banged and pepper sprayed and thrown in jail for 60 days and, you know, on and on. But did he give up? Nope. And then he had a total breakthrough. And, and the, the funny part was he didn't even know what went right. Then he had to go again back to the drawing board and see like what happened there that, that worked. Yeah. It's, he's a real agent. He'd gone through, he paid with, for his experience with like, you know, real blood and tears. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so valuable. That's, that's the hero's journey itself too, because, you know, he could have just figured things out and got on with his life, but he knew that he had to turn around and bring this elixir back to his people. That's right. Yeah. And Mike said, failure is learning. The lies that tricked us into being debt slaves are the same lies that stopped us from being truly humble and pushing through failures to beauty. Wow, that's amazingly well said. I love that. And it's kind of a good segue for us to, uh, to jump off and start talking about money now. Sure. So, um, okay, so with money, it's a very re relevant topic right now because we have uh, this talks about great reset and um, like UBIs and digital central bank, digital currency and Bitcoin. But I would say to for us to understand the future and where it's going, we have to look, we have to investigate the past. Mm -hmm. You see, the world is uh, like seesawing between two types of money, virtual and hard money. Mm -hmm. And that these cycles has been going on for over 5,000 years. Wow. Um, yes, so the two types of money is either soft money, credit, or even better, a social agreement, or hard money as precious metals. And these are the kind of two schools of thought of money the being precious metal or a social agreement mm -hmm. so with uh, precious metals it's a pretty standard story you know they say people didn't know how to trade so they used to barter you know if i have some grain and you have some i don't know some apples and i need those and if it happened that both of us need it then we would exchange but right. what if uh, you have something that I don't have 
and there there isn't this coincidence of want, right? Then we would come up with some material that both of us would need, i.e., gold or some other material, and then use that as a uh, medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the standard story, uh, we'll we'll get to that. And then uh, the standard story is that first it was barter, um, then precious metals and gems, and then that developed this virtual money. Um, and so that's the standard story comes from, Ad well, in the West, it originates from Adam Smith. But the thing is that that's not fully true because uh, archaeologists and anthropologists, they never found such land of barter. They never found a place in history or existing civilizations or cultures which use uh, barter as their daily exchange system. No kidding. Yeah. So that's a big, wow, that's a big lie. Amazing. It is. Wow. Um, yeah, I did a degree in, in anthropology. I didn't study a whole lot of archaeology, but that certainly is the ongoing narrative. Right. Um, you know, and even in modern day university, they teach, well, you know, first it was barter and then credit and so on. But the examples they use is think of uh, like some Neolithic village or some um, native village or maybe like a New England colony village and people didn't have money, so they would use barter. But think about it like this. If both of us are living in such village, we most likely have an ongoing relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. We know each other. We are probably neighbors. Uh, we'll see each other in the future. And um, there's an expectation of an ongoing relationship. So and so if I come to you and ask for some apples or a therapy session and I don't have some, you know, we don't have the medium of exchange, how do we solve the problem of coincidence or what? Well, I tell you, I owe you one. Mm -hmm. wow. that, and that's key because this means that the basic unit of commerce isn't the unit of scarcity, but a unit of obligation. Okay, so say the difference between those, the, the unit of scarcity, can you define that first? Well, uh, puka shells, that, that's <laughs> something else. I'll, I'll so get to that it, later. Okay, okay. Well, that's the gold coins or some commodity that people would use to exchange materials with. Okay, so that's the hard currency. Yes, mm -hmm. instead of a unit of obligation, an IOU. Now, the question is, well, how do we measure what is this IOU one? Okay. And then that's where I'm like puka shells and other materials come in uh, as to measure, as to serve as a unit of account of this debt. I'll give you an example. So. In Wild West, there were cow ranchers and cowboys, and uh, you know they would do their work and then come to the saloon because they want to drink. But they would get paid uh, like monthly or biweekly, so they rarely had any hard currency on them. Mm -hmm. And so what they would do is they would um, order a small glass of whiskey, I assume, 
Yeah, probably whiskey. And uh, but because they didn't have any hard currency, they would pay with bullets that they have. And it just so happened that cost a uh, price of one bullet is equal to this uh, small amount of whiskey. Right. This, and this is why when you go to a bar today and ask for a small glass of whiskey, you ask for a shot of whiskey. Wow. Or I love that. Or whatever. Wow. And then like when they would get paid, they would come back and buy back those bullets. So right you know what it what, what you know what i mean there yeah so it's oh, that's a, neat. yeah so it's like a unit of measurement rather than a uh, something valuable to exchange right right and so the historical cycles um first place where records um, go up is um first agricultural civilizations like Mesopotamia. And we found a lot of records there, but they're mainly of debits and credits and loans and interest payments mm -hmm. and interest bearing loans. And so that means that the story is actually the opposite of the traditional one. It's not barter and then hard currency and then credit. It's rather first soft money and credit. And then, uh, gold came much later gold came gold coins came actually thousands of years later hmm. but with and and it's mesopotamia it's babylon it's early um israel but and people talk a lot about like babylonian death slavery and stuff like that but here's the key thing um when you have a soft currency system and it's and you have especially a de an interest bearing debt system the debtor class keeps growing and they keep accumulating more debts and the creditor class keeps uh, accumulating resources and so they basically had debt crises in Mesopotamia, babylon and well, israel ancient israel and what they had to do or something called debt jubilees, which is a uh, systemic cancellation of debts uh, to be as a clean slate situation. And it's actually very interesting. The first mention of a, con of a word that meant freedom, amargi, was in the context of debt relief. The first word for freedom meant um, come back to mother because people who fell as dead pawns could now come back to their families. Oh my gosh. Wow. Every little thing has meaning, doesn't it? Yes. It's not random. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Wow. Yes. So and so that's the key thing is that, um, is that when you have a soft currency system, you have a system that protect protects, debtors mm -hmm. and you could easily wipe these slates because they were all these credits and debits that were just recorded on um they were recorded on uh what do you call them clay tablets in okay. fact you know the word bankruptcy it comes from italian banca rotta which means broken bench because when bankers went um uh, default 
people would come and break their benches on which they would sit. But this process of breaking uh, the banker's bench um, and breaking records, it's, it's been going on for thousands of years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I love it. You're going to hear wow a lot. <laughs> I love how all these things fit together. It, it, it makes my brain wired, right? Because otherwise we're living in just so much ignorance. And, you know, some people do choose to, to, to dive in, but some people don't even know what to dive in about. And that's you know, right. so it's, that's why it's so valuable that you've, you've come in and talked with me tonight. I'm, I'm so glad. So don't let me interrupt you if you were in the middle of a thought there. No, it's no problem. Mm -hmm. And so characteristics of a successful soft money system is, as I said, protection of debtors. Right. As you had these systemic um, debt reliefs, you know, and in Israel, they had... Uh, dead jubilees every five years and every seven years. It's it's written in the Bible, even, mm -hmm. that a Hebrew was to be released after seven years of service. And even in the Hammurabi Code, it's written that uh, dead peons are allowed to come back to their families after three years. So, right. So that's that. And then we have a next hard, and then we have a hard money cycle with the axial age and. Uh, about 800 before oh i'm sorry the first cycle lasted from a, from about 300 uh, 3500 bc to 800 bc mm -hmm. and so, that's also includes babylon we, the word yes. babylon is so common these days we're all talking about babylon right so it is do you want to talk a tiny bit about that because it's maybe out of context a little bit why babylon has such a bad rep Right. Yeah. Like what's, what are the roots of, because I, I know Babylon to be uh, the tower, tower of Babel and how, you know, people at one point could all communicate with each other and then they were cursed with different languages. So does that all relate at all to Babylon or is that? Something well, different? it's a tower of Babel, but there is a, in the revelation, there's a whore of Babylon. Right. I think the tower of Babel means more about the bureaucracy, how, the top stop talking to the bottom, but whore of Babylon refers to um, this ever increasing um, population of again of dead slaves mm -hmm. in ancient Mesopotamian Babylon. In fact, this area is you could also call it the origin of patriarchy because what happened is that early Mesopotamian Babylon women were. Um, in fact, quite surprisingly, participating freely in public life and uh, liberal arts, and they had all kinds of titles. But what happened as the debt system developed, um, as the debt system developed, um, you could, for, you know, as surety for loans, uh, fathers or families, they would first give their land and then some holdings. And then if the debt got really bad, they would eventually have to give away their children and then eventually their wives. Mm. And so because of this uh, debt system, that is ultimately backed by state violence, um, bodies of people, but mostly women, got 
commercialized and commoditized and so enslaved and indebted women had to you know go work as in taverns and as prostitutes and there's this big um i guess a moral breakdown and that's where like the idea of women have to cover themselves up came from because uh, the higher ups they would ask their women to cover up implying that they are not women of easy virtue unlike those indebted women and then the semitic tribes the semitic tribes the israelites they all they escaped from these cities because they didn't want to participate in that system and that's where that idea of hatred of the city versus the country and horror of babylon came from there's the, that's the, that's not the esoteric side of things. Uh, Cal will probably tell you about the esoteric part, but that's what uh, on the ground historic records seem to show. Is that with development of state backed uh, debt system backed by state violence, uh, bodies started to get commoditized. Right. Right. Because our, our bodies are considered property. That's right. And through, mm -hmm. no, continue. Sorry. Just going to say through through uh, you know the Sestakavi Trust and Unum Sanctum, uh, th that property was claimed. Right. We we lost ownership of our own bodies. Well, I think that's more relevant to Rome because concept of our private property as um and of dominion over bodies and absolute mastery over bodies really came from rome mm -hmm. but um i guess we'll get to it in the next stage mm -hmm. and zero infinity hi nice to see you he's asking how is babylon re related to the roman empire so maybe you're going to cover that well my point is that when you have uh, rome and babylon they're really different because you have different money systems babylon is running on a soft money system based on credits and debits mm -hmm. and um, you know recording clay tablets but rome is based on a uh, hard currency system but you know i haven't got to rome yet so okay no problem we don't want to know and, and so Nishiketa just said chattel or cattle or livestock exactly mm -hmm. Okay, so with Rome, and it's called the Axial Age. It lasted about 800 BC to 600 A after Christ. Um, mm -hmm. And this seems to be a similar pattern around that time in Mediterranean, in the Ganges Valley in India, yeah. and in China, where you had many of these small kingdoms. And they're all like these republics and kingdoms, and they start fighting for dominance. And one ends up winning and establishing dominance and forming something of an empire, mm -hmm. which in turn now needs a professional army, professional army, uh, professional standing army. And the question becomes how do you pay that standing army? Well, right. you could pay it. You can't pay it with the credit instruments and with IOUs because 
they become useless on long distance. Uh, you could pay with livestock, but you know you would need to maintain a large herd walking behind the army, so that doesn't work. Well, uh, how about pay with these golden coins? And then what's and then what they what it looks like what they did was, you know, the emperor pays his army with the gold coins, but then he asks his population to give him back these gold coins in form of a tax. And that's how you feed and for you, how you pay for the army because the for the population to pay this tax, they now need to acquire these coins somehow, which means that they need to create businesses and structure their markets um, in a way that they can service the army and earn these coins that only the army has. Do you see what I mean there? Sort of. <laughs> can you say it again? Um, so the, the, they, in effect, they, created this military coinage slave complex. Mm. The Because you can't pay your soldiers with livestock or credit instruments, you, but you can pay with gold. Why? Because it can be transported and it can be stolen. It doesn't, you know, for you to give credit to someone, mm -hmm. you need to trust them. It's a tr trust-based relationship. Right. But, you know, soldiers are probably the opposite of a good credit rating. And so the best way to pay them is for is with gold because gold doesn't have any need for trust it's a ah, precious metal. i get it now and you can also steal it and you can trade it from other places right right that's huge yes and so we have this cycle of the king pays his army with these coins uh, the coin um and then these soldiers now you now go and you know take over cities and then enslave everyone, send slaves to gold mines. Then they mine gold and then make more coins. And then that perpetuates that system. Mm. Because that compared to previous times, to uh, the previous cycle, uh, the Axial Age saw incredible violence. You know, you had Alexander the Great who was mm. sacking cities. You had Rome uh, with, you know, taking over Carthage and pretty much destroying the whole city and enslaving everyone. That was unprecedented violence. Was it uh, Vlad the Impaler in that time too? Oh, no, though, that's medieval times. That's, okay. Although that is a hard money period and that is an empire period. Okay. Um, and, you know, another interesting thing is that around this period of axial age, it was the time when um, a lot of intellectual traditions came about. Um, Christianity started to take root there. Confucianism and Buddhism took root there. Mm -hmm. Ideas of materialism and idealism. And Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. that, that's also when Greek philosophy developed. And it appears that these religious movements um, started as a way, of, as peace movements, against 
the periods of incredible violence that were acted by state. Right, right. Kristen in the chat just said, this is so illuminating. I agree totally. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, this stuff is amazing. Connects so many dots. Yes. The part about you're, you're confused about, I, I know how to frame it. Mm -hmm. So people talk about, especially in like right-wing libertarian, like an Acapulco type circles, they talk about how markets, especially impersonal markets are natural. Okay. And that's not fully true because it appears that uh, states encouraged impersonal, emphasis on impersonal rather than personal, impersonal markets to develop so that they can provide for their armies. Okay. So what's the difference between the personal and the impersonal? Well, personal, it's ultimately between people who you know, and uh, it's they are usually held in local communities and villages and, you know, the operating feelings and intentions are more than just pursue for profit because you know these people and you can have relationship with them further. And so you're not just trying to get the best deal and best advantage over them. Right. But right. impersonal is when you don't know the people who you're trading with and you're never going to see them again. And they travel from d different large distances and Right, exactly. So that's, you know, there, there is a move towards, and we're probably going to end up in that situation sooner or later, uh, that we need to combine up with our local communities again, if that, if you haven't already turned in that direction. Right now we have access to this, uh, you know, across the earth, you can buy and exchange goods, but that might not always be the case or even for very much longer. Right. I mean, I would even argue you don't really want that because that means you're disconnected from your food, you're disconnected from clothes you wear, you're disconnected from food you eat, you're disconnected from the materials that you are working with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's like you go anywhere in the world and what do you see? A Starbucks, a Best Buy, um, you know. Walmart. An H&M, a Walmart, exactly. It's the same, same yeah, who thing. Who just told me that like Walmart is bigger than every country in the world or something in terms of the size of the corporation? I'm not sure if I got that accurate or not, but just heard something about Walmart is like the king. I mean, for example, Apple is wealthier than many countries. Right. But I'll get to that later. It's a, it's a part of a matter. Okay. And so, with can I can I quickly interrupt with that? Yes. Kim, Kimmy said, "I think the Sumerians made a deal with humans, and so the downfall. Red blood, blue blood. What do you what do you think of that? Or is that jumping ahead?" Sumerians made deal with humans. Well, they used human bodies as sureties for loans, and so you're turning, um, you know, an infinite human soul into a unit of account as a slave you're ripping them from their um, from their intimate human context and making them and isolating them mm -hmm. as a slave as a death peon so right and do you want to just mention like about surety for people like myself who aren't totally sure what that means <laughs> speaking of surety surety is um um it's like collateral for a loan. If you're 
put up some resources to make sure that the to make sure that the loan is repaid. I'll give you an example. Also, you know how I mentioned how religious and Christianity and uh, religious movements came about in that time. Mm-hmm. Jesus is what's the title of Jesus? He's known as the Redeemer. To redemption and to redeem mean also means to regain something that you're given off as a surety. Hmm. And it's very interesting because, you know, in 1611 Bible, they talk about sin as uh, debt. Right. You know, it's a religious um, institution, but it uses language of the marketplace. And that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much because the time when Bible was, at least New Testament was written, was when you had this hard money policy where you couldn't get, you know, create these uh, clean slates. You couldn't wipe that that's off because it's all hard money based, which means that there were big um, debt crises, and so these arguments about debt relief and redemption and how we would be saved from redemption mm-hmm. uh, they there's in a sense um political statements that took place when these texts were written right right oh yeah and that's okay so moving on I mentioned that because you have a hard money system, it's harder to get rid of, to erase debts, mm-hmm. which means that you have larger, ever larger, ever increasing populations of debt slaves. And that's effectively how Rome fell because they had, um, they effectively enslaved most of their population and they, which couldn't serve in the army. So they hired German mercenaries and then work well. Um, moving on next cycle of soft money is middle age middle ages from about 1600 to 1450 and from 600 to 1450 or or is it 1600 600 600 okay because axial age is 800 before christ and 600 after christ okay so um I'll start a bit halfway in that period, 600 to 1450. When crusaders um, came back from the first crusades in about 10th, 11th century, they brought all kinds of new technologies with them and trade routes. But the most revolutionary thing they brought with them was the bazaar, or as we call it, the marketplace. Right. And that was revolutionary because now these peasants, instead of just working for the Lord and giving their uh, a share of the crop to the Lord, they could now create value and exchange it and trade it between each other. Right. And that was uh, revolutionary. You know, and right. he, the key thing is that they didn't use hard money, A, because it was associated with soldiers and other characters of low uh, moral standing. But also there weren't that many coins around. So what did they use? They used, for example, market receipts. Let's say if I'm a shoemaker um, and I, I make 10 pairs of shoes and I make 10 receipts, 
And so I bring my shoes and the 10 receipts to the marketplace and I buy and sell. I buy goods with these receipts and the receipt says, I owe you one pair of shoes and this sh pair of shoes also worth however it's worth. And so I buy and buy my groceries or whatever with these receipts and then people can also use them to buy their stuff. But then if anybody needs shoes, they just come to me and, re and redeem these receipts. An example, if you would go to a store and issue um, therapy credits okay. and and if people would just, you know, trade these in like a farmer's market and then they would either keep them as cash or if they needed therapy, they'll come to you and redeem these therapy credits. Right, right. Got it. Or another, it's, it's a pretty genius system. They used a grain-based currency system where a farmer would bring grain or oats or something that he's grown to a storage facility um, it would get stored it would be measured how much grain is stored and then he would receive these receipts saying uh, this contains this much grain and this much grain is worth this much money and then the farmer would go and buy his groceries and whatever he needs with these grain receipts and if anybody needed grain they would just take these receipts and redeem them and the key thing was that you, this currency system didn't store value because, you know, grain spoils and rats eat it. And so it would lose in value, let's say 10% a month. And uh, because it loses value, the bias of the currency system is to get rid of it, is to exchange it, keep it going. Mm -hmm. I give it to you because you don't want to, uh, you don't want it to lose value on you. You give it to someone else and you give some, and you, you increase this velocity of exchange. You do not earn $10 once, but you earn $1 10 times. Right. You know, because if you earn it, or earn it 10, uh, $1 10 times, it means everybody else also earned that $1 10 times. And it's gone around between people and commerce was created. I often think about that with respect to uh, property that gets exchanged so many times and it, it continues to earn the, the, you know, the value of how, how it reflects in the market, of course, but, uh, but that one piece of property is, is really only worth, you know, in reality, it's worth that, but it's, but it's received, you know, it's that money has been exchanged so many times, it becomes an exponential, you know, very abstract value at that stage. Yes. Yeah. The purpose of property is to not to be a house where you're living with your family, but as an asset, but that's a bit different. And so the key thing with that decentralized local system is that it created immense period of wealth. In fact, it created unprecedented wealth. Um, let me see, you know, because communities didn't have any savings accounts or savings vehicles, they needed to invest all their accum accumulated wealth somewhere. So they started to build cathedrals. Okay. You know, that period was called, and you know, pretty cathedrals, the nice ones, the Gothic ones, this period was called the first Renaissance or the age of cathedrals. Um, you know, people in like working class, people enjoyed four meals a day, work three or four, 
days a week. Women were taller in these centuries than in any other period. Meat wasn't scarce. It was great. They were thriving. They were thriving indeed. You know, historians uh, come to a consensus that this was the most decentral, uh, this period of the most distributed wealth ever in history. Hmm. So, w- would you say that's more natural how that was working? Exactly, because, it's right, natural, right? And because it's bottom up. Yeah, yeah, because that's the breakthrough that that I've had is that this is not a world of scarcity. God did not create scarcity. God created the opposite, total abundance. That's excellent point because that sort of money system is based on abundance. It's based on your ability to create goods and to create things of value. So it's right. not it's 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 on a abundance paradigm. Right, right. So the question is what happened? Right. Where did all of this go? Well, as you know, natural middle class started to rise. All these aristocratic families who haven't worked for like centuries, they started to lose va- to lose value and power and wealth. And so uh, they invented two things which now run as the operating system of the I guess, current economic arrangements, which is uh, the corporation and the central currency lent under interest. Ah. These two pillars, you know, it's like if you look at logo of Citibank, it's like two pillars and the arch standing on them. Um, and that's what I think capitalism is, because look at the word itself. People have all kinds of their own ideas and stuff, but look at the word itself. Capitalism. Ism comes from Latin and Old Greek, ismos or ismos, and it means I side with. Ah. So what does the word capitalism mean? I side with capital. If three, If economy made out of land, labor, and capital... Capitalism is the state siding with capital through centralized currency and corporations. Whoa. So let's deconstruct what what are those two things. So um, central currency, they effectively banned all these local currencies. They, you know, used all kinds of excuses to do it. And it was a, and instead, if you wanted to conduct commerce, you had to go and borrow money under interest from the central treasury. Mm-hmm. And it's an, it's effectively you're changing from credit to interest, um, from credit based on trust and mutual aid to scarcity through violence. What do I mean? Let's say 10 merchants borrow $100 each at 10%. Mm-hmm. You have $1,000 in circulation but they all owe $1,100. Right. This ex- where does this extra $100 come from? It doesn't exist, which means that either someone has to go bankrupt, i.e. debt prison, and they got pretty nasty, like people chained together and sitting in filth and died, or someone has to borrow more. 
hence you get growth you got this growth mandate the desire to always borrow more which means that the creditor class is constantly getting wealthier because that's where this debt slavery debt bondage situation comes from right and so again everybody's now competing for this uh, essential currency that is scarce and so now we have this scarcity paradigm and it's scarce to be again backed by state violence right um for example in one of the first originators of the system was philip the fourth of france and for his I guess contributions to centralization, uh, Dante Alighieri threw him in the inferno in the, in his great, great poem. But wow. that's... Oh, that was the source of that, Dante's Inferno. Well, it's, it's its own piece, but he goes through hell and there are many different nasty characters and and um, Philip of Fran- Fourth of France was one of the ones who ended up in hell, but... Anyway, and then the second pillar is corporation. Well, they started off as what's called chartered royal monopoly, mm-hmm. where let's say um, you're my favorite shoemaker, and I'm a king. I give you a royal shoe, shoe monopoly, and now all the shoemakers in the country now have to work for you instead of creating value and trading it at the market. They all now have to work for you. And this is actually when they put up clocks on the towers because now you're not creating a value and selling it on the marketplace. You're now selling your time. Boom. Yes, we can't we can full circle. Um, <laughs> this is, if I can interrupt quickly here, this is the yes. crux again of, of the way that I coach people in business is to stop selling their time for dollars and start valuing the results that they can get and, and also getting away from that very uncomfortable position, especially women have, where they're like, oh, my God, what, what am I worth? And struggling with this programming that actually I'm worthless, because that's, that's what the, the constant propaganda is, is uh, installing in us. And, uh, and rather to, to break out of that, stop, you know, you're, you're priceless. That's, that's my basis, that every being is of God. They are priceless. There's no... There's no ticket that can could be put on their on their head. So exactly. if they if they reject that model and and they break out and it it the paradigm shift is monumental. Like half of my clients don't end up getting it. They right. Don't, they don't have a breakthrough because it's so ingrained in us. Right. That's where the this tyranny of the alarm clock came from. You know. You know? <laughs> like you wake up at like 7 a.m and you're like oh god i have to go there and this something and well here it is it's tyranny of chronos i guess mm-hmm. and so yeah that's when they put up clocks and towers and now people are selling their time and this is you know this is when employment became the base model and it's very strange because in the past the only people who really sold their time were dead peons on and servants and slaves and, right and also that was uh, I guess moment of disenfranchisement of working class and of craft master craftsmen because you know if you have a factory 
you don't want a productive um, master worker. You want, you know, someone who you can hire and fire and you want someone to just nail one, uh, hammer one nail into the shoe instead of a master craftsman. And so right. humans become a burden rather than a source of creation of value. Wow. You know, that was also the time when like Renaissance, real, uh, quote unquote, real Renaissance kicked off. And that's when the concept of an artist as a hero became a thing because back in the past, everyone was creating stuff and creating value and creating these pieces. But now everybody worked in a factory and it was only this one guy who was the artist. Right. And so, uh, so that's the thing with capitalism. I side with capital. You get when you side with capital, you get disenfranchised labor. That's uh, you know ra- wages falling. That's uh, kids. You know now who don't have enough money to go to uni. That's um, not enough benefits to that's high housing costs. That's food getting higher, uh, more expensive, mm-hmm. and that's polluted land and that's mm-hmm. high inequality where we've got like what, several people own more wealth and exactly uh, 40, oh sorry i cut you off go ahead oh no i was i was done uh Nechiketa earlier uh, mentioned about inflation is that what you're talking about inflation um what about inflation uh, just is this what you're talking about when when it, it that uh, the, the I don't even know how to answer the question, but it it, it sounds like you're talking about how um, you know that your dollar that you have the same amount of dollars, but you can't get the same amount of bread for that dollar anymore. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it's overall you got a system of extraction of value rather than creation of value. Mm-hmm. You got a a uh, hard money debt system and a corporate system. You know, the purpose of a corporation isn't to promote exchange or create value, but rather extract it from its place of operation. And so these two pillars, they effectively, uh, their bias is to suck resources and suck value out of their uh, place of operation. And so these two pillars, they became... I guess sales of colonialism and that's how you know these corporations spread and how they took over the world and that system works only as long as you have somewhere to grow as long as you have places to extract from mm. um but in and so it, it reached its peak around world war ii because you know colonial countries started to push back and get independence and so on and um well we're still right sitting on this operating system today but it's really running on inertia and that's why all these um central bankers and so on they try to do this great reset to to keep it going rather than realize that you know uh a new cycle is about to come of uh, again soft money and decentralization, so I see, right. 
Wow. That's amazing. That's a lot to take in, but I, it sounds like everybody's with us here in, in the chat. That's, uh, there's, there's so much that we haven't, and, and it's, it's all done by deception, right? There's no disclosure. There's no, there's no telling the people, here's what we're doing to you. Here's the system. Do you agree with this? Do you consent to it? It's, it's, it's all tacit agreement, right? So I'm not really sure about the consent part because, you know, uh, the system of that slavery that was really created through violence ah. through saying, you know, okay. You know, they, um, it was legalization of credit. First of all, people gave credits and debits to each other, but then they slowly introduced the legal system into it and they banned local currencies, uh, into being so this the, the talk about consent it ignores presence of um power differences between parties you know there's such a thing called contract of adhesion okay. when you don't have a choice but to agree you know it's like if you're a renter or you have a some sort of utility company and it's like a monopoly or if you're an actress trying to get a job at a hollywood place you know it's like well yeah you can consent but you really had no choice not to consent exactly. it's a contract of adhesion so God, consent is important yeah. but presence of power and more importantly violent inequality mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. more it's irrelevant and more real because after all that's what creates power and differences Right. Yeah. Just a really quick example. When I was sick with cancer 20 years ago, I was living in a, in a rental situation and I had a kind of tyrant landlord and uh, something really needed to be fixed. And I was trying to demand it. I was trying to force it. And, and then he, he just turned around and he looked at me and he said, you could just leave. Exactly. Right. And it's like, uh, you're telling this to a person with a stage four lymphoma, you have no heart. And, uh, Oh, like just a big wake up of, what what environment i was actually operating in yeah exactly you know you could have like written that into a contract like if you disagree with me you know feel free to leave and because you have no choice you know you just, you just have to go along with it exactly so this whole money story i kind of brought it up to up to today Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do we want to go into what's going on today yes. with such a large context behind yes. us? Absolutely. So, in my opinion, a way out. Out of the, oh, by the way, because we're talking about times and cycles mm -hmm. um, from sixteen. So, hard uh, soft money cycle was sixteen. Um, 600 to 1450 mm -hmm. and then these empire hard money cycle was going on from 1450 to 1971 that's when the u.s went off the golden standard hmm. oh that's a long time yes yes and so the way out i think is or i think through banks actually because well what is a bank? People talk about banks, 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 evil, or so on. What is a bank? Mm -hmm. So there are three theories of banking. Um, and 
two of them are wrong. The most, the predominant theory of banking today is financial intermediary, where banks just gather up savings and they give those savings as land, as loans, and they're just in the middle. That's what they teach in university. That's what they taught my sister. That's what they taught me. That's false. Uh, that's not true. Banks are in fact creators of money supply, yeah. and because when a bank gives out a loan, it creates new purchasing power out of thin air. Right. right. No value um, there, right? Well, again, remember that um, money is a social contract. Mm -hmm. It's an agreement. It's a claim on scarce resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you okay. take out a... Pardon? I was just going to say, claim is uh, considered to be the most powerful legal word that there is. It's, yes, exactly. It's the strongest word in common law. Mm -hmm. It's a claim on scarce resources. When you take out a loan, you sign a loan document, and you're saying basically, I owe you this much money, and then they credit that amount to your account. And so if banks create money out of thin air, well, what does that mean? That means individual banks have credit have a lot of power mm -hmm. in fact you know people talk about oh fiat money fiat money like current government money 90 percent of all purchasing power today is private bank credit right 90 percent of all money today was created by private companies i.e banks uh -huh. that's a big deal nobody talks about it. but uh so to make banks useful, you you just have to have the right institutional structure. I'll give an example of, we have, for example, England, where it's centralized. You only have five banks and five big banks. And so five big banks only lend to big, other big financial institutions or big corporations. And they don't support uh, small business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, small business creates most of value and like small business runs better than um, publicly listed corporations by, right. by far. Or you, and so in, in England, you have um, centralized banking system. But in, you, in Germany, that's not the case. In Germany, 70% of all deposits are held by small and medium nonprofit community banks. Hmm. In Germany... Um, a town with less than 2,000 inhabitants can boast its own bank, which supports a small business that creates a lot of value in that local community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, think of a bank like um, Bank of a River, it directs the flow of currency and liquidity and it can direct that flow either in productive methods through uh, farming and irrigation and stuff like that, or it can direct it to unproductive ways through floods and to tsunamis and whatever. And does this so, start to get into, is it like admiralty law that's, uh, that's all got the, the connotations of the sea or is that something different? Probably because commerce has this maritime language, but I'm not too sure about that and, you know, Unless you're specifically working it with in documents, I wouldn't worry about it. Right. But but that's true. There is that connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Can I uh, interrupt with a question? Yes. So Sandra is asking, hey, Sandra, oh, sorry, the other one up. How does one go about creating a bank that will benefit the community? Um, no the pressure. bank, no problem. The <laughs> bank has to, operations of the bank have to be geographically limited. Okay. So the bank, so ger these German banks, they only care about their immediate community. And so they can't, you know, flee to the city or uh, to other countries or to uh, other places. They have to work with what they got. And so they have to care about their immediate community. Mm -hmm. It again establishes that trust face to face, um, local trust based system. Okay. Um, and so that such nonprofit community banks, bank, um, works only with people, uh, prioritizes small businesses, it, it prioritizes its local businesses, and that's how you can create um, sustainable local development because this bank operates as a common unifying financial institution for the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you take another question? Sure. Uh, so Zero Infinity says, I thought that the world went on a credit system in which there was no money and no debt, only infinite credit line drawn off a ledger and the excess credit unions uh, units in circulation used as currency. Okay, so where does, how does, okay, in that case, the question is where does the money, the, where does the bank um, get the money from? Mm -hmm. Where does the bank create money? when you put your money into a bank um, it's not legally speaking it's not yours anymore you're giving ownership of the of your money to the bank mm -hmm. but what you get instead is uh, went on the credit system that's that's partly true what it does is gives you these credits these receipts saying ious give look at it like this if you have a bunch of gold coins and you put it into a bank, it instead gives you these paper receipts saying, I owe you the gold that possesses, that sits in this bank, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so when you go and buy and sell with your money that's sitting in the bank, you're not trading with the gold, you're trading with these credits that bank gave you. Mm -hmm. So today what happens is when you go and you uh, get a loan contract by law, you're effectively, this loan contract becomes a uh, security. So if people, uh, I don't know if people can visualize the accrual accounting, debit and credit accounting, um, double entry bookkeeping ledger, but effectively, the loan contract that you sign becomes a security and then the bank uh, credits the amount of money that of, of credits the amount of that security onto your account so it effectively writes in the amount of money that you promised to pay mm -hmm. it, it effectively invents new deposits right and so 
that's true there we don't um bank of england came out with a paper saying that's the case you can find it it's called this theory is called credit creation theory of banking and bank of england said that they don't know um if there's a limit to how much money banks can create and this is key because remember i said capitalism state sides with capital right mm -hmm. But if capital is A, it's abstract. It's just credits and debits, right? It's not gold or anything. And it's a social obligation. And B, it's not scarce. Why should we prioritize it over labor, over people, and over land, which is unlike capital, which are real and which are living? You know, and that's what I think the paradigm and shift of value should happen is the prioritization, not of abstract, but of real and alive, mm -hmm. because they, they are the real scarcity. Capital isn't scarce. And you can create all you want and just give it to productive businesses, and you'll have non-inflationary economic growth. No problem. And is that related? I have to assume yes. That um, when when they turned us into fictional characters with our with our capital letters, right? If you go to a bank, you can't even change your name from capital to lowercase. They will actually close your account and get you to leave. That that's something to do with your merchant account. Okay. Um, I'm not sure about. I know that's a thing, but I'm not sure about specific specifics of that. Okay. I know how they create money, but all right, all right. And so, yeah, the way out is through priority of real versus abstract. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. again, if capital isn't scarce and it's abstract, why give it so much priority? Right. Over real people and real land. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we've got ourselves lost in the land of fictions, right? And uh, that was apparent to me at the beginning when, when you could see, even before any COVID happened or any, there was any talk of reset for sure, that the, the economies had lost their real value, that people are basically just trading um, numbers on, on screens and, uh, you know, trying to get wealthy for no work, no value. No labor. That's right. And and there's it's got to come to an end, right? You, you, that can't go on into infinity. Right. At the end of the day, someone has to create the stuff, you know, the goods. Right. It has to be accounted for. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I kind of missed that. Uh, the financial system was created so that nobles and king, other kings, friends could passively invest in these uh, royal chartered corporations so they could buy stocks and bonds and so on. Right. The purpose of the financial system was to provide investing opportunity for the elite. And that's why still most of financial assets are held by um, the top population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. So... Yeah, so oh, do you, mm -hmm, go ahead. Um, and so if banks create purchasing power, 
that means they are very powerful. Right. And we can, in fact, utilize the power for good, which is why what happens today, which is why people are talking, uh, central banks are talking about central bank digital currencies. Is that way you want to, where you were going or? No, go for it. Yep. Yep. Okay. So if uh, policy, overarching policy for past maybe 20 years have been, was a slow but steady war on banks since beginning of, uh, since European Central Bank went into business about 20 years ago, 4,000 of these small German banks got closed hmm. because, again, they want to centralize the financial system. Same thing in America, same thing all over the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so think a bit like if people have a lot of water wells and so they all use their own water and instead now they all go closed down and now the Lord has his well and he gives water to everyone and everybody is dependent on him. Right. Right. Meanwhile, that water comes up. It springs eternal from, exactly. from the earth. Yeah. What if, that's the biggest gem ever that there's a water shortage. Exactly. Yeah. And so now they're trying that that's their goal is to try to centralize and to kill banks, mm -hmm. to close the banks. That's why they're moving to like negative interest rates because negative interest rates are fatal for the banking system. Right. Uh, Right. Are they are they actually trying to die? Like, is this is this a, a suicide on their part that they know? Well, is they don't want to buy to die. Like in Germany, the small banks they want to serve their community and they want to improve it. Right, but I'm right, but I'm talking about the, the 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 bigger banks. Is is there a suicide of that going on? Like, I notice the Royal Bank in my area here is busy closing their their. Uh, locations down it's it all it is becoming much more centralized just even on the local scale yes there is a centralization process going on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know in uk uh, all the bank stocks are like 80 percent down so wow that's a lot oh it's not 80 percent they are on the like lowest since like the 90s so mm -hmm. the same in japan and in europe Mm -hmm. So there's a conscious policy against banks for centralization of credit creation. Okay. Very good. So then do you want to talk about Bitcoin? And that, that was actually what in initially inspired this conversation. I saw your story about uh about bitcoin and i i wanted to ask because I've, I've got a little bit of uh interest there i know interest is probably the wrong word but uh yeah i'm uh, engaged with that and so how did how did that all come about and what does it represent in in our system how does it relate to everything that we've already talked about is is it a, is it in fact a a move towards um greater centralization do you think or or decentralization so Bitcoin is a very interesting technology. It has a lot of potential and it's a sign that we're clearly moving back into the virtual money stage. However, this technology can be used both for good and bad. Um, on one side, there's a high demand for local currencies. And although I personally think uh, they're better done in paper because it's just 
easy and easier to perceive. It's a great system and it lowers transaction costs and it's a better accounting system. Uh, however, the global banking schemes, central banking schemes and systems, they also have demand for it. Mm -hmm. And in effect, it's meaningless without property rights. You know, if they implement 100% tax rate or something like that, it can be taken away a problem. Um, my pro my worry is that new mediums are usually appropriated by the elite. What do I mean? When printing press came uh, became a thing with Gutenberg, it was quickly appropriated by the state. And so, you know, literacy, um, people gave mass literacy and they create, but they could only print things that were allowed by the state. <laughs> you know, it's like nowadays um, we can print our own things and we can read and write, but not many people program. And so we have this elite creating these programs like YouTube and Facebook and so on. Mm -hmm. And so there is a new mediums are, this the pattern seems to be that elites are appropriating new mediums. And they can very easily do so with crypto. Right. Uh, now, Bitcoin specifically, uh, there is a, nobody knows where it started from, where it came from. We, the only thing we know is that it came from this certain Satoshi Nakamoto, this Japanese gentleman. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows where it came from. And he kind of have this has this religious... Uh, almost religious connotation that oh you know he he came out he came out and he created this technology and we're all gonna be safe uh, however if you were to put his name into right Japanese order and you translate the individual characters and what they mean you would get central intelligence mm -hmm. now uh, maybe that's like one of those full disclosure situations. Uh, maybe it's, you know, it's like one of those games that those who control the lives of others like to play, but that's suspicious to me. Okay. And it's so, with such contracts, it's really not surprising that, um, oh, just several weeks ago, JP Morgan came out with its own blockchain project. Right, right. So that's the, the, the mainstream hitting hitting that so-called alternative path right They're yes co-opting yes in a sense mm -hmm. it's like you know from left side you know it's like it's easier to attack an army from two sides rather than from head on on one side you have central bank digital currency on another side you have control of bitcoin because mm -hmm. at the end of the day crypto is just a better accounting system it doesn't rehumanize the economy the stuff that I talked about with mid middle ages and trust-based relationships and face-to-face -face relationships um, that's based on human trust, that's based on Kairos. Mm -hmm. You know, Bitcoin and crypto, it's a great system, but it's just a better accounting system. Right, right. Just yeah, because it's really heralded as some alternative... Thing that's going to save people and they'll be free from 
all of the economic slavery that that we face. But are you saying that it's it's really, you know, it's just a hammer, and it depends on what you how you use that hammer? I, it's a it's a tool. Yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, I guess we have to go there. Freedom uh, means to be free means first and foremost not to be a slave. Mm -hmm. uh, and since slavery means annihilation of all social ties and ability to form them, freedom means the capacity to make and maintain moral commitments, commitments to others. Mm -hmm. English word free, for instance, is derived from German root meaning friend. Since to be free means first and foremost to have the ability to make friends, to keep promises, to live within a moral community of equals. Mm, I love that because it fits right in with my sense that, uh, you know, you cannot get freedom without purpose. You cannot have purpose without connection, right? One person can't be free. That is, that is a, uh, I don't know if I'm using this word wrong, but, it, it, but it's a social contract. It, yes, it's an obligation. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about rights and, oh, I have rights, my rights, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. My rights are, or rights of one, or someone's rights are someone else's obligation. Uh, my right of freedom of speech is your obligation not to prosecute me for speaking. My right to freedom of the ju of jury, um, of trial, of also my freedom of trial by jury is your is obligation of the community to maintain a um, system of jury selection. Right, right. Uh, Ice Cream Day, hello, was saying the only reason I'm wary of crypto is that it, it's always overthrown another possible credit system. Well, it's not a hard credit system. And th that's a good point about being overthrown. They whoever they are, have more than enough money to pump and dump and to destroy any cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if freedom lies, you know, face to face, eyes to eyes, breathing, you know, and synch synchronicity, then that's where it will ultimately be found. Not in, oh, on my phone and over the B and the number. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, so enlightening. There was a couple more comments up here that were really interesting. Let me see. Um, let's see. Something mm -hmm. back about um, the banks can only deal with the agency of the trust, back to the capital letters. Uh, the agency of the trust corporation established by your birth certificate in the name of a fictional entity that is in all caps. Right. I mean, but if, if you're doing it, if you know the banker personally and he knows you and he knows your business and he wants your business to succeed and it's a trust based on um, moral relationship, then that's what matters because all that stuff is just paperwork it's bureaucracy because mm -hmm. you know you can still create accounts and you can still create uh, credits and debits and you can create your own private currency and so on you don't need all the birth certificates and all caps it's just bureaucracy right right got it yeah i thought how simple that would be if if 
currency falls apart and people are smart enough to operate in their local community. Well, I mean, you have, you have no choice by that point. And then what would stop them from just creating their own currency, literally just, you know, uh, giving some kind of means for standardizing exchange and, and uh, being able to pass on the value that you have in, in a meaningful way. Exactly. Uh, for example, last time when such happened was in Germany, 1920s, mm. when uh, they had hyperinflation. And so because they didn't have any proper money, what happened is that they issued something called Notgeld, N-O-T-G-E-L-D, which is like emergency money. Mm-hmm. That was that, when... Does it mean not gold? No. Okay. It, um, although I see why you would say that. No, it means emergency okay. notes, emergency okay. money, because geld and uh, money, probably connected with gold, yes. Okay. But what happened was because they didn't have any good money, private firms and even restaurants and small cafes, they issued their own credit notes, their own IOUs um, to pay for their groceries and for their supplies and for their, to their workers. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, if, if you look those up, there's it's dazzling variety of all kinds of notes they created with like local folklore and local stories and some, businesses and they made and they printed them on like porcelain and leather and stuff like that's really cool stuff got creative oh yes incredibly (laughs) i love it that's the power of the human spirit the human spirit knows how to create the the you know the powers that are not to be they don't know how to do that it seems they they only know how to borrow on our uh or to steal outright how to our, our creative power Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their system is based what on extraction, right? Um, constant growth and always wanting more, um, asking for more. But mm-hmm. I read about it in my book with uh, a few di- of the different arch- archetypes, particularly the hedonist and the king, where the, the hedonist has a vacuum of pleasure, and and they turn into that hungry ghost, and the more pleasure they get. The, the more empty they feel. And it's the same with the king and power. So th- th- that dark shadow king that is not, you know, doesn't have the sense of serving the people, being a servant of their own kingdom, they, they go for power and, and every bit of power and control they get just makes them want more power and control. It's what we're dealing with. That's right. Um, that definition of freedom I gave, it's very important because it creates a distinction between two types of relationships, horizontal relationships mm-hmm. based on moral commitment and social context of those relationships is that of moral commitments of you know friends and family and rivalries and so on. And then you have slavery, i.e. relationship based solely on in power. Right. And the thing with kings, it's pretty interesting because, you know, if you look across history, um, you can't help but notice there's a curious sense of identification between emperors, kings, and slaves, meaning kings surround themselves with slaves, appoints their ministers. There have even been like dynasties of slaves. Um, And they surround themselves with slaves for the same reason they surround themselves with like 
um, eunuchs because slaves have no families or friends, no possibility for other loyalties. Uh, um, you know, there's a African proverb that says a proper king has no relatives either, or at least he acts as if he doesn't, hmm. which means that like the king and slave are mirror images and like, in that unlike normal human beings who are defined by their moral commitments to others, they're defined only by relations of power. They're as yeah. close to perfectly isolated, alienated as one can possibly be. Wow. Yeah, because the, the two, they're always two sides of the same coin, right? That slave cannot exist without the... Uh, the master. The master. That's it. That's it. Exactly. I don't know if it's just because I have a whole chapter in my book devoted to it, but there there does seem to be the 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 king seems to be a thing. I, I feel like kings are very needed, but of course, awakened kings who who are not um, I, I think you were implying this earlier, who are who are with it, who have senses, who have a heart, who feel the pain of their people, right? Like you, they can't just let their people die in debtor prison. They would feel, like that's happening to them. I suppose, yes. I'm a bit, I'm sorry, I'm a bit biased against, um, I guess, the monarchical structures. Right. But I think you're implying it more in a uh, metaphorical way rather than... Exactly, an archetypal way. Exactly, yes. it's, it's king energy. So yeah. And, and let's talk about the difference between sovereignty and freedom because the word sovereignty is very uh, wide-used these days and and I, I was also one to to be spouting it until I talked to you so what can you share with us about that sure so it started off when um, I was on a call from our empower group and we invited Kevin Annette to talk hmm. um, and he was talking about all kinds of things and he was talking about Magna Carta hmm. and he was talking about like rights and liberties that are grants and so on and I was sitting there and wondering, well, all these rights and liberties are great, but don't they only apply to the aristocracy? You know, as far as I'm concerned, if any of the peasants tried to, you know, object to the status quo, they would receive a whack on the head and ask to go back into the, fall back into the line. Hmm. <laughs> okay. And so... Um, that was very strange. And then I realized that it's the same similar process, you know, uh, in feudal Japan, only samurais had the right to own land, had surnames, and they could carry weapons. Same as in Russia, where I'm from, only nobles had surnames, they had, they were considered citizens, they had property rights, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, as I explained earlier, corporations started off as chartered monopolies held and owned by kings or his nobles with financial markets being invented so that these nobles could passively invest into monarchs, chartered monopolies. Mm -hmm. However, now everybody can open a corporation, buy stock or own land. This means that there's a process of delegation of rights from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the same thing applies to field of law and the concept of property right because you know, only kings and nobles had property rights. And so my concern over people engaging with documents like Magna Carta and claiming sovereignty and claiming these rights 
uh, because, well, are those even our rights to claim? Uh, are those rights ours to claim if they came from the top, if they came from the king who, or I guess the monarch, this state system which operates through power and violence, which is a horizontal relationship, not vertical. Mm -hmm. Oh, vertical, not horizontal, I'm sorry. Right. Um, you know, it's like, after all, legalese is often regarded as King's English, but uh, in a free society does not have any kings. Mm -hmm. You know, and so... Um, and yes. so my question, yes. Oh, I was just going to say that that word sovereignty, it, when I looked it up, it, it means to rule over others. Exactly. It means uh, supreme supremacy, uh, to hold supreme dominion. And so a claim of sovereignty is a claim of domination, a claim of hierarchy, a claim of inequality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Right. And so in that sense, it makes sense that, um, that, you know, as we observe over, over history, that the highest expression of sovereignty lays in the very ability to degrade others, to remove unique human beings from their hearths and families, thus render them anonymous units of account to turn people into slaves, serfs, and conscripts. Well, that just doesn't sound like what we want. <laughs> exactly. And that's, right. and you know, people talk about like all heraldry and um, being sovereign and claiming that status. But it's like, well, you don't want to be the. Um, do you really want to participate in that? You know, there's an uh, old famous English legend that holds when around 1290. King Edward first asked his lords to produce documents to demonstrate by what right they held their franchises. Mm -hmm. Earl Warner presented the king only with his rusty sword. Mm. If the nature of their rights and their liberties is less a right more and more a power, and a power executed first and foremost over people, i.e. violent inequality, how anything that came from such arrangements um, can be moral or connected to the divine. Well, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. You know, and that's where, again, the definition of freedom that I gave earlier, and I think everybody should keep in mind, uh, that's where, um, I'm sorry, that's where the definition of freedom that I gave earlier really comes into play because to be free means first and foremost to be part of a moral community of equals Boom. to be part of a moral relationships to be to be engaged in moral relationships so friendships and families and contracts and rivalries that gives me shivers head to toe that it's just it couldn't be more true and it's so simple that's right it you know again free um English word free derived from German root meaning friend. Mm. To be free means to be able to make friends, to keep promises, to live in a community of equals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. And, and it's not that easy to find these days. People who actually do what they say they're going to. Right? No. We have a very not. low standard. 
it's not it, it is hard because for such a system to be in place you need people who are competent mm -hmm. and who are ethical mm -hmm. and you know that um system of disenfranchisement of humans it's been going on what since for at least 400 years and can continue constant continuation and so of course it's hard but um you know the only good thing about an unsustainable system is that it's not sustainable <laughs> so right it comes it comes to an end any i mean it's not fair to ask you to predict it but uh it, it ain't gonna go down easy is one thing that hmm, seems pretty predictable uh, in terms of predictions i have no idea mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i hope i was you know um I was able to give you context for the past and a vision for the future. Mm. But in terms of specifics, uh, you know, anything can happen. You know, it's like in, when I was in December, I'm a, I'm a currency trader and like we have different models for speculating where different assets are going to go. And we knew that oil would go to zero, but we didn't know why. Like a pandemic wasn't on the list. A tsunami was, but a pandemic wasn't. And so I don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, Cal talks about this whole thing coming to an end, but people who are studying this whole Great Reset thing, they say it's going to be mass centralization. And so I hope it's the former, but, you know, we'll have to see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, time will definitely tell. We live in unprecedented times. Or, or do you agree with that, with all of your history knowledge? Do you, or do you feel like this is just a turn of the same thing? Um, well, you know, people say that, oh, this system, we have to work with it and it will never change. And that's the constant. But when Rome was a thing, people were thinking that, you know, how Rome was going on for it. A thousand years so it'll go for another thousand years mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but turns out that's not the case and what when it fell what followed was a more than a thousand years of um peace and prosperity and localism yeah i just pray we hope we were gonna live to see that part too uh sh hope so mm -hmm. <laughs> Yep, exactly. And that's where the, the creative power of the human being, you know, a lot of the, the people in the in the truth world, it is not to put put them down, but they're so fixed on exposing lies, that they haven't put any energy into creating the new life, you know, visioning, seeing how, how could life look, what could their part be in no, no one person can do it. But what is your part in that? Yes. Yes, you know, it's like you're trading in the big conspiracy for your own conspiracy. You know, you're trading that trust or they are trading because uh, you said a lot of truthers do that. They're trading. It feels like they're trading, um, you know, their human to human I uh, tr trust moment based on the look in the eyes in exchange for the big eye on the pyramid. And you know what I mean? Okay. I, I think so. Say more. Yeah. 
you said you see a lot of truthers um, focusing on exposing the conspiracy instead of building a new society mm -hmm. in shells of the old. Mm -hmm. And I see a similar pattern how, you know, it's like, remember, conspiracy means to conspire, right? Right, to breathe together. Exactly. Instead of creating their own moral community vehicle through conspiration, they are fo focusing on the great conspiracy there. Right. Actually buying into the wrong meaning of conspiracy. Right. Yeah. Like, remember I said trust is, is to establish through the eyes and looking in someone's eyes, right? Mm -hmm. They're trading in eyes of their peers in exchange for the eye at the top of the pyramid. Aha. Uh -huh. Now I get it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> wow, you're smart. So Christine is asking, how do you how, how does she find out more about you? Uh, do you are you are you open to being in greater contact? Are you, are you ready for that? Uh... I mean, sure, you can re reach out to me. I have um, a Twitter account, SKHV888. And I have um same Facebook profile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can reach me out there. Okay, perfect. I'll just put that up as a banner so people can see. There we go. Did I get that right? SKHB888. Yep. On Twitter and, and, and it's just my name, right? My regular name on Facebook. Okay. Okay. So put your name up as well. Sergey KHBALOV. Uh, I can send you it on the internal chat if you want. Is that right or did I get it wrong? No, I think I got it wrong. Here. There it is. I wrote it like 30 times, so still stick with it. There we go. No okay, worries. Well, <laughs> well, it's been a huge pleasure to host you for this conversation. I knew it would happen uh, at, at some point. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful rabbit hole to go down because all of this stuff, it's, I feel like I'm, I'm really growing up through this knowledge and, and I, I, I still, I still am just scratching the surface, but I'm at a, such a different place. And I think the most important thing is that my resistance to learning about the, the way that the, the history has played out the whole the financial Thing, the legal thing, which we haven't, maybe we'll have to have, have a second talk uh, on, on explicitly on the legal side. Now I have no resistance to learning, and and there's a there's a like monumental amount to learn, but I feel like it's, you know best to start now. <laughs> and uh, it, it feels amazing that, that I honestly have the sense that my energy has shifted, right? Because maybe that's the last thing we could talk about if you have a few more minutes to to just the spiritual implications of all of this that and you know and when it comes to we don't we won't have time to get all into it but just the question of jurisdiction that that i've been i've been playing with like raising up into to a, a place of higher jurisdiction than what has enslaved us this enslaved us this contract case and commerce law 
and and rising up into the law that is is um, the the natural law, God's law. And I swear, you know, I don't want to be too prideful about this, but people are treating me differently out there. When I go into okay. public, you know, I, I just see that. I'm, I'm getting, people are not hassling me. They might politely ask me to wear a mask. I say no. And, and then they treat me like gold for some reason. You know, there's just this beautiful slipping through the cracks. And it's, my reality is shifting. Um, well, we had our um, archetype calls. You told me one story, which kind of still says me to this day. And um, I think it's very interesting. You said that you're going into a store and someone asked you to wear a mask. And instead of arguing with them and fighting with them, you just told the lady, I love you. <laughs> yeah, and good. Thank you. You walked in. And that stuck with me. I was like, hold on, you know, because that's very powerful because you're breaking through all these um, structures of power and coercion and back into that Kairos, back into that face-to-face -face pure uh, energetic relationship. And it's no. recognized. Like at first she was a little stunned and, and yep. stunned her enough to just let me go by. So I was in yep. and I did my shopping and I had to go and return my cart outside. And I saw her and I just, I, without planning or you know, none of this is premeditated. I just said, I still love you. Just in case you're worried about me, I still love you. And, and she just beamed at me. Like there couldn't have been more happiness. That's Maybe right. I, bro I yeah. broke all her rules, but love seemed to conquer all. That's right. You know, because people talk about law and sovereignty and na na na, but all that stuff, all that bureaucracy flies away when, um, I guess coming back to where we started when this Kairos based relationship and energy based relationship establishes. Mm -hmm. And that's what has real power and has real ability to influence people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what what just gives incredible hope this when I get to this place of, of, of high jurisdiction and it's always through some kind of conversation or action, <clears throat> empowering action, then I have zero sense of being a slave. I am not enslaved anymore in that moment, right? It, according to Kairos, like, like you're saying, there's no destination. I'm not going to be free. I'm not working on my freedom. I can be free right now. Exactly. Exactly. You, you spot it on. That's you know, freedom means to be part of a moral community of equals. Then that's where freedom lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. All right. Well, you got lots of appreciation in the chat here. Thank you, everyone, for for showing up and participating. I I love this audience like anything. It's so great to connect at this level and uh so go go out fly be free as the the late robin williams used to say <laughs> and uh yeah we, we got this you know if we if we can stay in that in that high energy then it, we, we really do have the true power
It doesn't need power over anybody. It needs no violent, um, uh, you know, regulation or or upholding. It speaks for itself. That's right. It's, it lives on its own, and it was always here, and it was always going to be here, no matter how hard they try to suppress it. Yeah, exactly. So you can find Sergey at his. Um, that's that you, you put in the chat there. Your that's your YouTube channel, right? I put my Twitter and my Facebook and my email. I oh, did you? Okay, I didn't see it. So yeah, there it is up on uh, on the banner as well. So definitely reach out to Sergey. Uh, Sergey, sorry. <laughs> I have uh, a lot of respect for you and your your knowledge and the work that you're doing, and I have the pleasure of of connecting with you on some very important things. So God bless you. You're again, you're too kind and thank you for giving this opportunity. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. I hope it's, uh, it's got many more to come. Uh, sure. Like I know, I think I know nothing compared to what's out there and I'm always finding new sources and new books. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know how you feel when you, as soon as you you think you know something and then you got the whole window open up it's like oh I'm you know we were joking the other day it's like I think I got to kindergarten on this no maybe nursery school and then someone joked are you off the boob and I'm like maybe <laughs> <laughs> and that's the beauty right like that we keeps us all humble it doesn't matter where you get to there's always a source of uh, of humility and a great deal more to learn that's right, constant. Well, that's where life is, I think. Um, the German great playwright and poet Goethe, the way he put it was, um, you die when you stop uh, progressing and when you stop um, improving yourself and learning. You're right, that's Kronos. So. Start, finish, done. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you got a, a really high praise here. Christine said, most fascinating king hero yet. And there's been a lot of them. So that's great. Oh, my, you're too kind. <laughs> so, so many of these. And wow. well done. Well too done. Kind. So good. So good. All right. Well, signing off for now. Thank you, Sergey. Thank you to everyone here. I look forward to seeing you soon. Monday, I am hosting Bob Nodell, who is the king of the, the uh, Globebusters flat earth subject he is an intrepid 20-year uh you know what do they call that veteran of the sacred war and so i look forward to hosting you i believe it's 3 p.m on monday afternoon central time so stay tuned if you have uh, interest in in my background you want to read more about me i have a book on the archetypes of the hero's journey that i completed just before covid hit and uh, it's been really fun to, I've, I've sold more than 200 copies in less than a year. So that's been successful by my standards. Uh, you can also do an archetype quiz to find out a little bit about where you are on this path. We definitely need to know who we are, but if you don't know where you are, then you're missing a massive piece of the puzzle, just the way that Sergey showed us in the, the whole contextual history of where we're at. This also provides that on a, on a spiritual level. So bethmartins.com is my website. And uh, for, for on that note, I will sign off and say goodbye. And once again, thank you, Sergey. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. You're most kind. Mm, my pleasure. Okay. Bye for now.
one more thing. Here's your channel. Here's your channel. In case anyone wants to go visit. I don't, I don't have a channel. It's, it's just a, an account. It's just an account. Right. Okay. So we'll, we'll just put some pressure on you and you can, you can start making videos. <laughs> sure. Well, we'll see. <laughs> okay. Good night, everyone.